independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. Where else would we be? We, we live on this planet. But all of these imaginings visually of as if we were in a spaceship and we're looking down on the earth and we're, you know, we're whoever that we is, which is super problematic with the notion of the Anthropocene, are safely above looking at the mess we've created. And no, I mean, with transcorporeality, our bodies are already the Anthropocene. In this episode, we're speaking with Stacy Alimo, professor of English and core faculty member in environmental studies at the University of Oregon. She's the author of Undomesticated Ground, Recasting Nature as Feminist Space, Bodily Natures, Science, Environment, and the Material Self, and Exposed, Environmental Politics and Pleasures in Post-Human Times. Her work explores the intersections between literary, artistic, political, and philosophical approaches to environmentalism, along with the practices and experiences of everyday life. As a child, I grew up in a very polluted area on Lake Huron in Saginaw Bay, Michigan, in a small town. And I would go out there with my dog out to the the bay, and it was so dirty and polluted, no one would even go near it. So I really, I grew up with an awareness of the ravages of the environment. And Michigan was a very racist place as well. And so I remember at a pretty young age being really aware of how how racist a lot of my classmates were and the stupidity of racism and the evils of racism. All of that goes back a long time, as well as feminism. I was a feminist since I could remember being anything and the kind of sexual harassment, even as when I was a child, I mean, when I look back on it, I, I was actually a child, that kind of sexual harassment was just pretty constant. And I was always an animal person. I always loved animals. I saw an episode on 60 Minutes when I was a kid about factory farms and became a vegetarian immediately when I was 13. And I loved to read. I had a real secret life of reading. As far as the kind of entangled environmentalisms, I did have an incident where, well, there were a couple things. When I moved to Dallas, I got something from Greenpeace that asked us to 
participate in a study of how much, I believe it was lead was in our bodies. And the way that you did it is you took a chunk of your hair and you cut it off and you put it in this envelope and mailed it to Greenpeace. And then Greenpeace mailed you back this number, like this number, this amount of lead that was in your body, and then told you how it could have gotten there, like from, um, oh, actually, it wasn't lead, sorry, it was mercury, mercury in fish, like from eating tuna fish or something. So it, it gave you information about your own health and your own body and how things got into your body. But then it also provided ways of dealing with this, which were mainly political. There are a lot of political ways of dealing with air pollution and, and other issues around toxins. And I was just struck by how weird this was because I had done a lot of protesting and political action when I was in college and graduate school and beyond. And I thought, wow, this is so weird that I'm taking a piece of my body, basically, my hair, putting it in an envelope, putting it in the U.S. mail, and then getting back this weird number that I have no idea what that number meant or how to think about that. And that really did catalyze the sense of how our health and our bodies are not separate from the environment and that we just need to try to think through basically everything all at once, like all of the entangled intersecting issues that, that actually cross right through our very bodily selves and try to think about like how that affects ethics and politics and our idea of environmentalism mm. just from that sort of a moment. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of my recent conversation with Heather Davis, which just published, but she talked about how there's this geological layer of the earth called the plastiglomerate in which you can find plastic bits and pieces enmeshed within that geological layer. And that's sort of a reminder that even though people sort of separate plastic pollution as this separate issue or separate the synthetic from the quote unquote natural, it's very hard to make that neat distinction in the end when we're able to see these elements and pieces of plastic being embodied by the body of our earth. And to people who haven't had a chance to think much about this, it can feel kind of like a subtle difference, but I think this is a critical one nevertheless. A lot of your work challenges certain perspectives and narratives, and we'll dive deeper into the value of such philosophical shifts a little later on. But as an example, popular depictions of the Anthropocene portray the narrative as humans, or if they were more mindful to be a little more specific, particular groups of humans acting upon and enacting change on the external matter of the world. And you point out how this view still suggests a separation between the supposedly more agential human sphere and the inert environment in which its actions and decisions impact and alter. To the contrary, your theory of what you call transcorporeality invites the opposite. So for our listeners who are just learning about this for the first time, how would you introduce what it speaks to and how does it trouble that sort of dominant separatist perspective of the Anthropocene narrative? 
Yeah, yeah, great question. And I love Heather's book. It's actually in our book series at Duke University Press. So I was I'm a big fan of that book. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that image that you talk about there of the the plastic being part of the earth in a way and it's not separable. I think that that is really important for thinking about what's been called the Anthropocene from a different perspective. So what you're talking about when in Exposed, when I write about, when I critique these ideas of the Anthropocene, it's like, even though this is a this new theory that shows how much humans have altered the planet, there's all of these sort of what I think are delusional moves by both popular depictions of the Anthropocene and some of the theorists who, as you just summarized, they're imagining that the human is somewhere else. Like, where else would we be? We, we live on this planet. But all of these imaginings visually of as if we were in a spaceship and we're looking down on the earth and we're, you know, we're whoever that we is, which is super problematic with the notion of the Anthropocene, are safely above looking at the mess we've created. And no, I mean, with transcorporeality, our bodies are already the Anthropocene. I mean, our bodies, as as we know, we're, we're told this all of the time, we are carrying loads of humanly made chemicals. We're carrying various plastics in our bodies, the radiation, the wildfire smoke that I'm breathing right now in Oregon, which is, you know, it's not just particulate matter from trees. It's also when wildfires burn people's houses, there's all kinds of chemicals. And with the cars, there's so much chemicals in that smoke. So, and and that affects our minds, our psyches, our bodies, everything. We are physically part of this, you know, no longer completely natural world that we've deeply affected. And I think that's really the starting point for environmentalism. And I think nobody wants to think that way because in Western culture, we like to think of the human as separate and then nature as a so-called resource that we use however we want to use. It's just sitting out there waiting for us to use it to make our lives better. And (laughs) it's not really working out like that. I mean, it's all kind of boomeranged and it takes a lot of delusional practice to imagine that that's the case. Right. So we are really at once part of the earth, co-creators of our environments and the earth and products of our environments all at the same time. Exactly. And one of the examples you note as being quintessential of transcorporeality is multiple chemical sensitivities. And this is apparently a controversial issue, but in theory, it names the adverse reaction that people have from exposures to various levels of many common chemicals or pollutants. So chemical sensitivity is usually understood as a reaction to various chemicals, but the contention lies in whether or not it should or should not be classified as an illness. Nevertheless, according to a study by Barbara A. Sorg, which you name, about 4% of people in the U.S. suffer from severe multiple chemical sensitivities, and as many as 15 to 30% experience less severe cases. And also because this is something that isn't super well understood, and we can get into that a little also, but I would question whether this number of people being affected by these various toxins and pollutants might be even higher, just because a lot of people might not even know the sources of their more minor 
and daily symptoms of not feeling in their optimal health. And to these points, how do you see multiple chemical sensitivities and people who are more chemically reactive as prime examples of entanglement and enmeshment, showing that people and what's considered the personal cannot be neatly siloed from the political, the environmental, and the external? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was a brilliant encapsulation of, of all of those arguments and questions there. I think that probably a lot more people are affected by chemicals on a daily basis. If, if anyone has ever, say, gotten a headache from someone else's cologne or perfume or ca- cleaning chemicals, then you're on the spectrum of multiple chemical sensitivity. And I think at, at some end of, of that spectrum, I think everybody is is on there because we're all we're all affected by these things, probably to varying degrees. And I don't know that the science knows exactly the mechanisms here because it's it's very complicated. But it it is shocking to me how many things are normalized in the culture that are so toxic. For example, if I go into a a Home Depot store or Lowe's store or something like that, I can't go anywhere near that lawn chemical area. I mean, the smell, I can smell it a few aisles away and I get nauseous and a headache and it's very bad. And of course, one of the issues with chemical sensitivity that I talk about in the book is this really weird relationship to privilege and class because this great science studies scholar classifies it as one of these illnesses you have to fight to get, meaning because it's not recognized as a real illness that then you learn about it through various activist groups or, or other means but it takes a kind of not education necessarily but a real access to various resources to try to even make sense of what's happening to you and then on the other side of that which uh, Todd Haynes's film Safe portrayed really beautifully because the protagonist who was fighting to get so to speak MCS the uh, Julianne Moore character is sitting comfortably in her lovely living room. Meanwhile, the Latinx workers, household workers who are cleaning the silverware and other things with with toxic chemicals, of course, they're more exposed, right? So by virtue of class, there are many people who are much more exposed to these chemicals and probably are having MCS reactions, but really just don't have the luxury of pursuing that. I think back, uh, one, one of the most interesting things, I think, in terms of environmental history is that even though we relate the modern environmental movement to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, before that, there were Mexican-American, other Latinx, and then other various ethnicities of, of farm workers who were interviewed mainly about like labor issues and things, not about this. And they kept saying, look, these chemicals we work with, they're making us sick and they're making something wrong with our babies and they're, they're having all these effects on us. And they, they kept repeating this, even though that was not what they were supposed to be talking about. So one of the things I think is so striking about MCS is is it's like your whole body becomes like an experiment. So you're moving through the world 
or you're on your job and things are affecting you and you have to figure that out. And it's not normal, quote unquote, because normal is to just imagine that each of us is safely within our own bodies and that there's some kind of barrier between us and the rest of the world and that we're safe in there and that none of these things affect us. And mm. you really risk being called crazy if you say that soap in the staff bathroom is really giving me horrible headaches. Like people would look at you strange and maybe give you a hard time and you'd be a complaint. Like we're not supposed to notice these things. And I think cap, I mean, capitalism depends on that. Capitalism depends on us thinking that everything we buy is going to do only what it's supposed to do. And like, it's this perfect entity, this perfect object that will do its thing and not do anything bad. <laughs> and that it's not part of us, it's just serving us. So we have that idea that nature is here to serve us, objects are here to serve us, like all the things that we're in. And it doesn't work that way because we're, we're very much physically part of this world that we've created, better and worse. And I think so much with our, men our, our mental health, our physical health, the environmental health, depends on recognizing that. Yeah. And what really concerns me, and I think you were just speaking to this as well, is there seems to be a sort of cultural and systemic gaslighting going on that people's ailments or a lack of ability to quote unquote perform or work at our optimal states are often individualized rather than understood as contextual and systemic, or that some people's very real adverse reactions to toxins and pollutants are brushed off as psychological or from their own personal health choices. And I wonder if part of the controversy around multiple chemical sensitivities comes from how difficult it is to standardize and universalize people's different symptoms and reactions, because no two cases of multiple chemical sensitivities can ever be the same. Just like how mushrooms kind of synthesize and are products of their very unique environments and exposures, so are our bodies in reacting to and reflecting the unique environments and conditions that we're in. Because the socio-ecological configuration and, of course, concoction of possible toxins around us is all going to be very different. So I wonder if much of the difficulty to validate MCS as a legitimate condition comes from the fact that the scientific method itself seeks to isolate and decontextualize with goals of coming up with replicable, repeatable, and generalizable findings, and also how it views the ability to universalize findings as indicative of greater credibility and reliability. So what else would you add here, given your stance that, quote, we need the human imagination to enliven and contextualize scientific information that discloses otherwise invisible processes and effects, end quote. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that, that was really brilliant. I, I really agree with everything that you said there. And I, I do think that it part of the problem has to do with the way that science wants all of our bodies to be seen as the same and the sort of cause and affect relations to be kind of obvious and one dimensional and not, not actual bodies that have had different traumas, different experience and different sorts of chemical loads in them. 
And then to go back to the gaslighting that you talked about, and, and I might forget your final question, so I might have to think more about that. But to go back to the gaslighting that you t- talked about, absolutely. I mean, the whole idea that that people could criticize those with multiple chemical sensitivity for it being all in their head is so absurd when you think that this is a culture in which there are many, many pharmaceuticals that are meant to affect our moods, our psyches, like all of these drugs that are basically like these tiny little bits of particular chemicals in a drug to change your psychology. And yet, why why wouldn't our immersion within all of these toxins also do various things to us. Like, so on the one hand, we believe that these chemicals can affect us in positive ways. And then on the other hand, it's people who are experiencing MCS supposedly are just making it up in their head. Well, our heads are also part of the world and our our psyches and our, our entire health. I'm thinking I'm losing the thread though now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really a question, more so like a prompt, given that the topic of MCS apparently is controversial. And I guess part of my view is that that controversy comes from how difficult it is to standardize this quote unquote condition or this illness, because no two person's reaction is going to be the same given the different types of exposures and environments that they're in and their own bodies too, because no bodies are the same. Right. Yeah. So Giovanna DiCiro has a great essay and I can't remember the title, unfortunately, but it's it's all about how some industries were actually trying to test their workers and do genetic analyses on their workers so that they could figure out which workers, based on their genes, would be better suited for really toxic jobs and which wow. ones couldn't have those toxic. I know, isn't that amazing? Oh. So it completely shifts the blame on to the workers like, well, sorry, you have a faulty body. I guess there's something wrong with you and you can't have this job, which is probably a relatively high paying blue collar job because it is it has an element of risk and danger. And just imagine that, like not not thinking that there's something wrong with the fact that all of these toxic, dangerous chemicals are being produced, but that then you're going to go so far as to blame people for not being, that their bodies not being up to the task of producing these toxic things. I mean, it's so right out of some dystopian science fiction. It, it's It's really unbelievable. So right. yeah, so definitely blaming the individual, like like blaming us either because there's, you know, we're crazy or blaming us for our bodies not being good enough. I mean, that kind of hyper ableism there. Instead of thinking how can we make a world that is less harmful to all people and all living creatures. Right. It seems quite concerning that the takeaway seems to be how do we get people who are less sensitive to confront and work with these very toxic chemicals rather than how do we actually make this a healthier environment for everybody who works here. So that definitely seems very concerning. Mm -hmm. And besides troubling the scientific lens of 
universality and objectivity. I also wonder about the institutional bias disproportionately validating certain types of knowledge and not others. And to preface this part, of course, every researcher individually has their realms of interest and their hypotheses they want to test and deepen their and our collective knowledge. And I think that curiosity and thirst to learn is, of course, really wonderful. So this is not at all to demonize individual inquiries. But at a more systemic level, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of research requires funding from somewhere in order to be carried out. So I question whether there are maybe invisibilized forces such as philanthropy or government funding or technocratic institutions disproportionately backing certain types of research while disproportionately not valuing other forms of research or even deeming them as not even scientific. So in other words, I'm thinking about the negative space here as in what has been left out, what forms of knowledge and ways of knowing have been systemically sidelined without opportunities to even be validated and then incorporated into the teachings of academic institutions, and whose knowledge has immense potential to help us better understand our public and planetary ailments, but who may have been dismissed as not reliable sources of information. Mm -hmm. So to all of these points, I would love if you could speak more about the alternative contributions of popular epidemiologists and ordinary experts that have emerged from environmental justice and health movements. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All of that is so important. And I think one of our tasks right now, just to, to give another frame to the importance of this, in the post-COVID era, and then also with climate change, this idea that science is something you just believe in or don't believe in, you, you know, you believe in, in COVID and the vaccine, or you don't, or you believe in climate change and you don't, that is really problematic. And we can't go back to just a simple idea, which, which many people have done, I, I believe, just a simple idea that science is science. It's always right. It always shows us everything we need to know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is so simplistic and, and doesn't get to the fact that science is a process. I, I mean, I do think science reveals really important aspects of the world, but it is a process. And like you're saying, it can be deeply affected by economic processes, ideology, all sorts of things. There are forces that do not want certain scientific research to be done. And there are forces that have a lot of funding that want other scientific research to be done. And I think Robert Proctor summed it up perfectly in the title of his huge book called Cancer Wars, How Politics Shapes What We Know and Don't Know About Cancer. Because there's definitely, I mean, clearly the chemical industry does not, <laughs> does not want a lot of research done on which chemicals are carcinogenic or endocrine disruptors or anything else. I mean, that's just, of course, in their best interest that that information does not get out, that that science isn't funding. So I think that it's really important for all of us to be able to have this way of thinking about the factual accounts within science, but then also the science that isn't done and what we don't know and what we could know. And then I was actually, when I was writing Bodily Natures, I was shocked that 
at that time anyway, the EPA really, it's not like the EPA just sort of magically keeps us all safe. Certainly that's not happening, Mm -hmm. but they depended on what we'd call ordinary experts or citizen scientists to actually track and do this work of figuring out if some kind of toxic contamination was happening. And the people who do this kind of work are are really, really amazing. And, and a kind of quintessential example would be something like a parent realizes that wow, there are a lot of children at this particular school who are showing up with the same kind of brain cancer or something. Mm-hmm. Like, how could that happen? And then the question, and, and you imagine like a lot of people who aren't scientists and maybe who have never even been to college trying to figure out how is it that these children are suddenly getting the same form of cancer? And how do we document it? Are we sampling the water? Are we taking medicals? Like how how does this work? How do you go about dealing with that? I mean, it's such an amazing feat that so many environmental justice activists have managed to do this kind of work in community groups often without the help of any kind of experts in the field. And, you know, everybody in this country owes a lot to these people who are mainly unnamed. I mean, we hardly have any any names for these people even that come to mind. But yeah, I think I think that they're they're a real sort of missing missing presence in in people that we should we should really celebrate, I think. Yeah. And I do think it's really important to go beyond the simplistic frame of like, I believe this and I don't believe this because there's just so much more nuance. And if we think about a lot of the information wars going on, things labeled as misinformation or disinformation, I think there's a lot of politics in that as well, in that sometimes a lot of things are labeled as conspiracies when there actually could be elements of truth in that or if it could even be true but just be dismissed as conspiracy because those who have the quote-unquote greater voice does not want whatever truth to be found out and maybe this is controversial but I think there are almost always elements of truth in even different conspiracies because I think the root of that is people feeling like something doesn't really feel right and Maybe they land on a conclusion that isn't necessarily the truth, but I think there's still something to be learned from leaning into those theories and seeing like what are the roots of why people are so fascinated or so fixated on trying to come to a reason why whatever has happened or something like that. I mean, if you think about history and you think about something like the horrors of the Tuskegee syphilis experiments and the, the the black men who were imprisoned and they carried out these horrible experiments on them. I mean, if, if, if someone had just heard about that, they might think that that was a conspiracy theory and that it hadn't ha- and actually it happened. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I agree with you. Yeah. And so I think being able to, of course, see this institutional bias of Science is really important because to start, the lens of objectivity itself has limitations. And then on top of that, the types of research that get funded and therefore leading to the validated information available to the public get skewed by the interests of those with disproportionate levels of research funding to give. So again, not negating what we've learned per se, but definitely noticing the negative space. And 
I just think these implications are really large because we can't make laws and regulations and recommendations for personal and ecological and planetary health if we do not even have a full understanding of its complexities and different facets. So this sort of leads us to the question of what happens if the forces of extraction are already going to destroy and disrupt ecosystems that researchers haven't even had the chance to learn about enough yet. So here, I would appreciate if you could lead us into your inquiries and most top-of-mind thoughts you've been processing as you've been working on your book about deep-sea creatures, empathy, exhaustions, and the destructive impacts of deep-sea mining or bottom-trawling industrialized fishing. Yeah, so one of the things that I that I began thinking about when I turned to working on deep sea creatures was how is it even possible to try to extend environmental concern all the way to the bottom of the sea? Mm-hmm. Because I do think people are in this in this state of exhausted empathy, like and just exhaustion, just just generally, there are so many crises that everybody is dealing with right now. Even if even if we're not dealing with them, they're sort of lurking there and 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 vexing people in various ways. So I took this this thought of, of these deep sea creatures who are getting a lot of publicity aesthetically. So they circulate a lot, portraits of new deep sea creatures that have been discovered and they're very weird looking or they're really beautiful and they circulate on the internet in various ways. And there's something just so, I mean, so stunning about them. But I'm also really suspicious of this whole idea of it's almost this anachronistic sense of discovery, like a 19th century or 18th century or 17th century sense of discovery. And one of the things that I think is suspicious about that is this nostalgia for a time when, say, especially white Western settler colonialists could just like innocently, quote unquote, in big scare quotes, discover things, right? And it's like, well, these are at the bottom of the sea, so they don't really belong to anyone. So we don't have that problem anymore of colonialism. It's just there they are, and we can discover them. And there's something really disturbing about that. And that does come out, I think, in people like James Cameron's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and these other very masculinist explorers like Vescovo and and others who are, you know, it's all about the heroics of it all. But what I'm interested in and what makes me interested in the deep sea creatures is this, is a lot of weird paradoxes of, especially of the Anthropocene, that on the one hand, human activities such as deep sea mining, overfishing, industrialized overfishing and trawling, dumping of garbage, including plastic pollution, radioactive pollution, acidification, the warming of the oceans, so many things, even the noise, all of these things are really affecting marine ecosystems. And even at the bottom of the sea, there have to be, and and this is the figure that haunts me, there have to be so many deep sea creatures that humans have rendered extinct that we don't even know what they are. Like they, mm. we know, like it, it only stands to reason because we've, we've changed so much in the ocean and harmed so many creatures and taken so many out that there are creatures who are extinct and that we will never know who they are. And that is kind of a haunting idea. 
But then also just this question, how if we can't even seem to have environmental protections for areas that are close to human, um, you know, where we actually live, for areas that we see, that we love, that we're in, how in the world can we ever extend environmental concern to the deep seas where nobody's on watch, nobody is there, nobody cares about it really, except some people do. But yeah, so that, that I've, I've taken that as one of my questions, a sort of motivating question. And I mean, the, the only thing that, that there really is to motivate people is basically the visual images of these creatures. So in a kind of aesthetic sense, like an aesthetic appreciation of them as beautiful and worthy of concern. And that seems in a way, you know, pun intended, I guess, kind of shallow and <laughs> superficial, but then, but it's not, you know, like the other animal studies say with, with dogs has to do with them being companion species in Haraway's famous phrase and our interactions with them and our relationships with them, or say with all of the other primates, the facts that we're so closely related to other primates, like those are all about interrelation and kinship and proximity. But, but how, you know, how do you provoke concern for these creatures that are as if they were in another world, their world is so different and they are being harmed, but we have so little knowledge of it. And when we're talking about science and, and funding, of course, it's extremely expensive to do any research in the deep seas because it's, it's just, there's so many formidable obstacles but we don't, you know, the, the, we don't know like how how crucial are deep sea habitats and ecosystems and creatures to the global ocean ecosystems because ultimately everything is all interconnected in various ways, and you know we're we're rapidly decimating those those areas. Mm. This just leaves me with a lot more questions than answers and. Maybe that's the point here is that there's still so much that we don't yet understand. And what we do know is that when we destroy things that we don't yet understand, then we don't even know what we're losing or what the consequences of that will be. And finally, to weave everything that we've explored here together, you talk about, and you touched on this in the beginning as well, but you talk about how you think capitalism wants us to think of commodities as being objects that are completely contained, that they've been created by corporations to do what they're supposed to do without having effects or agencies of their own. So as we're nearing the end of our main discussion here, what more do you think is important to bring into this conversation here, especially as we underscore the deeply political nature of sustainability, which is centered on our collective and planetary well-being, and also the need to critique the broader social and economic systems and their underlying philosophies and cultural values? Yeah, I, I think what I would like to conclude with in terms of a kind of call to action is for people to resist the way in which environmentalism has been almost solely focused on climate change and climate change being only about humans. I mean, right here we have this 
<laughs> I mean, it's the same problem all over again. Like, like there's a problem for humans and we have to solve it for humans. No, that's not, that's not how environmentalism works. You have to think of interdependencies, interrelationships. And I do see that the popularized versions of climate change all focus on humans to the to the exclusion of everything else and so they're extremely anthropocentric going back many years ago to bill mckibben's uh 350.org group that he had it was completely anthropocentric and at that moment i thought wow environmentalism now is only about humans and that's that's disturbing to me so i would really like a more com i would like people to think about the more complex interrelations between climate change and other issues such as environmental justice, which also is about humans, and climate justice, also about humans, but as well, the sixth great extinction, which you hardly ever hear about, all of these species being lost and lost forever. And then the reasons for this loss of species. Climate change is one of the factors, but also habitat loss, drought, chemicals, overfishing, agricultural systems, all sorts of things that are destroying species every day. And I just, I think that we just need a more rich and complicated notion of what environmentalism is. And the great thing about that, like you can see it negatively because we do have all of these issues to contend with. But the positive side of that is that every one of us politically, socially, in our everyday practices, in our art and our thinking, all kinds of ways, every one of us can have some kind of positive impact in some of those areas. There's so many opportunities. <laughs> Since we have so many problems, we have so many opportunities to do something. And I think that, that that's something I'd like to leave people with. You said you think that you would rather be on your own. Then have to wait and watch another one you love go You're getting used to moving through your days all alone Why mess it up now? You're going tired of watching your own heart shatter You create indecisions beating and What's been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? A book that's relatively new that I absolutely love is Alexis Pauline Gum's Undrowned, Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. This is such an unexpected book. Like, wow, okay, Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. Who would have put those two things together? The book is absolutely brilliant. She talks all of the time about how much she she voices this love for the animals directly in this really 
passionate and unnerving way. It's full of history. It's full of culture. It has all of these practices. It's like a workbook. It's a manifesto. It's a call to action. It's, it's so many things. I just love this book. Mm, I'm excited to check that out. It definitely sounds really fascinating. I just love when people are able to connect the dots between what may seemingly feel to be unrelated. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Practice. I have to go with the practice here. Um, I meditate every morning and I meditate outside on my front porch and I've planted all of these plants for the hummingbirds. And so I meditate out there with my two dogs and with the hummingbirds all around me. And they're drinking from the plants I planted from them. <laughs> and, and, and it's just a beautiful way to start the day. But I also, I, since I, I moved here just before COVID and then I was trapped here during COVID, I have been turning all of my um, lawns into, or both of my lawns, into native habitats. And ba mainly for the birds, the bees, the butterflies, the snakes, other insects. So I'm really trying to create as much of a rich, beautiful habitat I can for other creatures in my yard. Mm. And what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment? I think... Just the, the the kinds of uh, political movements that are happening, like in all kinds of different areas, from trans and non-binary peoples, like as a feminist, seeing these these strong movements for non-binary and trans people, for environmental activism, all of the indigenous movements and indigenous activism and indigenous environmentalism that's happening. All of that, and then less overtly political, the people who just quietly do their things like habitat restoration or other things that are practices that, that would get overlooked, but I think also are, um, are really inspirational. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Stacy's work, you can head to www.stacyalimo.com. And Stacy, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and for this really enriching and thought-provoking conversation. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Hmm. Well, I would say that green dreaming needs not only to be envisioned, in, the envisioning is important, but practice. So I don't advocate hope. I know that's controversial. I don't really advocate hope because I see it as a kind of disconnect from reality. And so instead of ricocheting between hope and despair, I would say commit yourself to specific environmental and political practices that you think will make a difference. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. 
Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Eye of the Storm by Ali Deneen. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.